0: Good morning. You can uh, prepare for our message by turning to 1 Samuel. We will attempt to cover several different chapters today, not reading every verse inside of them, obviously. I don't know if you caught it this week, but there was a story on Yahoo that surfaced about a, a 60-year-old British florist named Carolyn Byrne. This woman sent an angry critical email to her daughter-in-law-to-be, a woman named Heidi Withers, telling Heidi basically why she wasn't good enough for Mrs. Byrne's son, Freddie. Heidi did what any normal young person in the modern era does. She forwarded that email to all her friends, who forwarded it to their friends and so on until it went viral. Now the entire world knows about Mrs. Byrne's harsh message. Heidi and Freddie are now thinking about eloping, understandably. A month ago, very few people in this world knew who Carolyn Byrne what is, but now she will be remembered as Momzilla. Have you ever considered what you are known for, what you will be known for after you leave this earth? What one thing will people look back on your life and say, oh, yeah, I remember. He was the person who, fill in the blank. Is it your personality? The job you had? Your mistakes? A lot of folks would answer this question by saying that they wanted their posterity, their kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, to be their legacy. And that makes some sense, right? Unless you're very famous in your lifetime for something like a well-known piece of art, Or an invention, your bloodline is probably the most tangible thing that you'll leave behind when you pass away from this earth. This morning, we are going to look at some ancient words. We're going to compare the lives of two people, two parents in the Old Testament, both saints who loved God. And it's my belief that neither of these individuals would want to be remembered for their children. Famous and infamous children. Both Hannah and Eli would ask that their private devotion to God serve as what we know them for, what we remember them by, not their offspring. In their lifetimes, Hannah and Eli learned through very different means that godly parents are first and foremost devoted to God and to carrying out his commands. And so I'd like to look at, through Hannah and Eli, what we can learn about devotion to God. The Old Testament often calls it the fear of the Lord. It means a heart that is rightly related to God and is submitted to him and to the way he thinks. It means you fear him more than you fear other people. And because you fear him, you obey him. You are devoted to him. So the first point I'd like us to look at, and it's the first blank in your outline, is that devotion to God means we trust in his timing. Means we trust in his timing. This is the first lesson that I think Hannah learned. Let's read the first few verses of 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zophite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah. And it goes on to say he had two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh. The temple had not yet been built and located in Jerusalem. They still had a tabernacle in Shiloh at this time. And it was there at Shiloh, that continues in verse 5, where Hophni or three, Hophni and Phineas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival, that's Peninnah, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. We'll continue from there. I'd like you to see, first of all, that Hannah's life situation was causing her grief. Her life situation was causing her grief, something that we can all relate to at certain points of our life. When the situations of our life come together and it causes us anxiety, it causes us grief. As the curtain pulls back on the twin histories of First and Second Samuel, the first thing the author shows us is a picture of a woman who should have been very happy. Hannah appears to have been married to a rather wealthy Israelite named Elkanah who loved her deeply. But as was the custom in those days, since Hannah could not bear children who would inherit their father's estate, Elkanah apparently took another wife, Peninnah, And of course, I need to make the point that this was not God's prescribed solution. He created one husband and one wife for life at the beginning. Mankind has been trying to alter that setup ever since. But this second wife scenario might sound familiar to you. Many of you read through the Bible in 90 days earlier this year. And you might remember some of the problems of Abraham and his descendants in Genesis. Several of them took second wives when it appeared they wouldn't be able to have children. At least from their human point of view. So Peninnah had children; they were Alkana's heirs, and Peninnah took delight in ruthlessly needling Hannah about this. You, could have, you can see how this would have happened, right? Peninnah, like Leah in a different time, is envious of Hannah's obvious place as the favored wife. Did you ever try to put yourself in Peninnah's shoes? She didn't have it that easy. To always know that she was second. She didn't get the double portion. She didn't get the love from her husband. Hannah was like Rachel. And Peninnah held on to the one thing that she had over her rival. Kids. And Hannah well knew how that culture prized children. And she felt the void that came with those unfulfilled expectations. Especially with her rival goading her constantly. And this continued to the point where Hannah was exhibiting signs of what we would probably call today clinical depression. Look at what Elkanah says to her in verses 7 and 8. Whenever, when Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? An ill-fated attempt at comforting his wife. Having a child consumed Hannah's thoughts. She was obviously miserable. And nothing, not her husband's clumsy attempts to console her, not the joy of an annual celebration at Shiloh, nothing could take away the hurt that was gnawing at her soul. Have you ever said, or maybe just thought, unless this situation changes, I just can't see myself ever being happy again. That's where Hannah was. We have to see that not only did her life situation cause her grief, but that grief drove her to faith. It says, as she went, in verse 9, continued Once they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple, and in bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. The idea is that she left her family, went to the area of worship, and knelt there and poured out her soul to God. Maybe Peninnah was throwing comments at her back as she left. But Hannah left to have a private word with God. It's interesting. Commentators have seen in verse 11, verse 11 reads, She made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. Commentators have seen echoes of how the nation of Israel at times, when they were captive in Israel or in in judges, when enemy nations were assaulting them, they would cry out to the Lord for mercy. Remember us, Lord, in our hour of need. This poor individual woman was praying a similar prayer. Lord, remember me in my hour of need. In a moment of pure irony, as the text continues, look in verse 12. She kept on praying to the Lord. Eli, the old priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and, lip, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk. And said to her, how long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Irony. Eli's sons were notorious scoundrels. And I wonder if he saw drunkenness so often from his sons and maybe his sons' friends there in God's place of worship that that was the first thing he assumed. Isn't that often the case that we jump down people's throats for the areas that are most weak? in our own lives. In fact, he called her a daughter of Belial. That's the, that's the name here. How long will you keep on getting drunk? He calls her, he thinks she's a worthless woman, but she's not. In fact, his own son, the text goes on to say, were sons of Belial, Hophni and Phineas. It appears, though, once Hannah explains, I was just praying to God, I'm not drunk, seems that Eli understands because he says... In verse, uh, verse 17, Go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of Him. He seems to understand that God's hand is on this woman in her hour of need. Friends, I don't want us to come away thinking that as Hannah was driven to faith here that she made a deal with God. This vow was not something that the Lord owed her. Psalm one twenty seven three says that sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. We never strike a bargain with the Holy One. The Lord bestows children according to His plan and on His timetable. There are ladies of faith in this room who have never been able, never had the privilege of having children. and It has not been God's will to meet your request. Today I cannot claim to understand the ache in your heart if that has been an unfulfilled desire of yours. But Hannah could. And the text shows us here that she was surrendering her will to God's will, telling the Lord that no more would she find her joy or lack thereof in children, no more would she let that consume her. But she was going to trust the Lord wholeheartedly. And we know this because After Hannah's faith flowered here as she wept and prayed to the Lord, her faith changed her outlook on her life situation. Look at verse 18. Hannah said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Hannah's faith caused her to look at her situation differently. It had caused her grief, but she looked at it and she realized that God was at work, that he had not forgotten her, that she could trust the Almighty. One theologian says, There is a telling contrast between the Hannah who emerges from God's presence full of hope and confidence, though her circumstances have not changed. And you'll note that she didn't emerge from the tabernacle carrying a baby. It's not like right away things changed for her. But though her circumstances have not changed, she has found a peace with God. It's interesting that this pattern in Hannah's life, life situation causes grief. Grief drives you to faith. Faith changes your outlook on your life situation. can be seen many times in the Psalms where the writer of the Psalms, often David or another man of God, pours out his heart to the Lord and says, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't see the big picture. I don't get it. Why do the wicked prosper? Why is my life in danger? Why don't things work out the way I think they should? But over and over again, friends, as we read those Psalms, don't we see them reaffirming, Lord, you are in control. Lord, I will praise you. I will praise you all my life, as the song that we said. They learned to trust God, like Hannah did. And they ultimately would conclude those psalms most of the time with reaffirming, Lord, I will trust you. I will praise you. I will declare your glory among the nations. Hannah concluded that she needed to depend completely on Yahweh. And it's interesting. From here on, every time that Hannah is mentioned in Scripture... It's mentioned that she shows joy. She's full of faith. She's resolute in trusting her God. This was a woman who rejoined her family that day different because she had a different perspective on God's sovereign plan for her life. She now was willing to wait on God's timetable. And as we see, the Lord remembered her, verse 19. And in the course of time, God's time, not ours. Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Devotion to God means that we understand and we accept his timing. But it also means, friends, that we recognize his right of ultimate ownership. His right of ultimate ownership. You can look at, at the, at, starting in verse 24, says, After he was weaned, Samuel, and this would have been about when he, Samuel was three years old, two or three, Hannah took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three year old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for the child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over to the Lord. You notice in these verses, Hannah's using a play on words, constantly saying, I asked, the Lord gave. The Lord gave him to me. I'm giving him back. Hannah's, first of all, sacrificial gifts showed her submission to the Lord's plan. What she gave showed where her heart was, not unlike Rich was talking about today. Um, Most parts of the Hebrew text talk about not just a three-year-old bull, but really three bulls. And that shows us that Elkanah was a wealthy man, but it also shows us how sacrificial Hannah was because this was above and beyond what was normally expected in these sacrificial offerings. So Hannah gave three bulls plus other sacrifices and I wonder if she grimaced as she thought that Hophni and Phinehas were going to be benefiting from her generous offering, as we'll see a little bit later. But not only did she give an above and beyond these sacrificial requirements, but she gave up the primary parenting rights of her son Samuel. If it was hard to donate a portion of her family's wealth to such scoundrels, imagine how hard it was for Hannah to surrender her three-year-old son to a priest in his 80s, possibly even 90s at this point, who had a reputation for being a terrible parent. How much did she trust the Lord to let her three-year-old son go hand in hand with this elderly man into a house where wickedness was cherished and God's word was muted? As we see in chapter 2, verse 19, you can see there that Hannah would each year make him a little robe and took it up to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah, his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. Hannah only saw her son once, maybe twice a year. She turned over. She surrendered her parenting rights to Eli. Eli Samuel was now in Eli's hands. That's not right, though, is it? Really, Samuel was and always had been in God's hands. Hannah understood that. She embraced it. and She trusted her Lord with her only boy. We see later on in verse 21 of chapter 2, the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She conceived and gave birth to three sons, two daughters, Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. God graciously provided five more children to Hannah and Okina. He did not have to do this, friends, but in his kindness to her, he gave her more than she could ever even ask or think. He showered this faithful woman with children when she thought, I'm sure, Lord, give me one child, one child only. I will be happy to give him back to you and never have any children except to know that Samuel is in the house of the Lord growing and serving you. Lord, that's all I want. I am happy with that. I am devoted to you. But what a wonderful joy for her to get more children in God's good providence. Not only did Hannah's sacrificial gifts show that she was submitted to God's plan, not only for her life, but for Samuel. But Hannah's remarkable song showed her understanding of the Lord's ways. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We won't read every verse, but the theme of the song is something like God lifts up, is the one who lifts up the lowly. She may have written it herself. She may have sung something that was already in use at that time. But regardless, Hannah showed remarkable wisdom to comprehend what God was doing and would do. Look at verse 3. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. It showed that God God was aware of the sins of Hophni and Phinehas, as we will see shortly. Look at verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive, he brings down to the grave and raises up. This contrasts divine taking of life with divine giving of life. And we will see this later in action, both in the fact that he bestowed life in five more children on Hannah, but he took life from Eli's family. Verses seven through eight says, "The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts." He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them He has set the world. God rejoices in lifting up the humble and exalting them above their station, above what they could have expected out of their meager, lowly life. God exalts. He loves to reach down to the weak and strengthen them. In verses 9b through 10, we see a foreshadowing of something the Lord would do in the future. It says, It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's interesting, this is the first mention of kingship in First and Second Samuel, the books that would describe for us the development of the Davidic monarchy, the greatest king of Israel, until, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ will take the throne of David in the future. Nothing is more lowly and incapable of great things on its own than a newborn baby. The narrative of Samuel's birth might ring a bell for us, Because we remember other accounts in God's Word, like the births of Moses, Isaac, John the Baptist, and ultimately our Savior. There's something mysterious about God giving life through birth. It's a very intimate and powerful way for the Almighty to show His power and authority over the lives of mankind. He seems to like to remind His people of His strength through the simple act of their having children. The lesson Hannah learned, and she underlined, I think, in this song, was that her children did not ultimately belong to her. She could not conceive them on her own, and she could not ultimately ensure their safety or their spiritual condition. Like every other thing or person for which we hold some accountability, little Samuel belonged to God. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And that's not just things, that's people, isn't it? Unlike Hannah, we probably will never have to relinquish our children in the way that she did. But like Hannah, we have to recognize that the Lord is in charge of our kids just like he's in charge of every other situation and circumstance in our lives. We run the risk—the serious risk of making our children into idols when we fixate on their problems, making them happy, keeping their little world uncontaminated, giving them the best possible future. This is a daily struggle for those of us with kids, or even grandkids, isn't it? In community groups, I'm always amused to see that child raising is one of the most thorny and entertaining topics that we bring up. People who seem very quiet and easygoing can get very intense when you're talking about little Billy and little Susie, right? Matters of discipline or education or their children's health. But that's natural, right? Those are serious and important topics. In fact, as we're going to see A good and godly parent is very conscientious about bringing up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and taking care of them. But we are so prone to take this too far, to shoulder a load that the Lord never intended for us to bear, which is the complete responsibility for how our kids turn out. Let's be careful not to tread on what the sovereign God has assured us that He will oversee in his wisdom and might. Of course, like so many issues that we face, there are ditches on both sides. It is a temptation to idolize our kids, but we may also struggle with the opposite problem, which is, I think, Eli's issue. Some people tend to compartmentalize. They keep their household and their family situation totally separate from the other areas of their life. This is how a talented politician like President William Jefferson Clinton got in such hot water. And in our section of 1 Samuel, the priest Eli is continually contrasted with Hannah, his sons, compared to her boy. In Eli's life, we see the tragedy of a parent who defaulted on his parenting obligations with lasting and terrible consequences. So, not only do we see that this devotion to God in parenting involves trusting in God's timing, recognizing his right of ultimate ownership, but it also means that we serve as responsible stewards. And the story here tells Eli's account in three parts. Look, first of all, at verse 12. We have to set the stage a little bit. Eli's sons were wicked men, they had no regard for the Lord. It goes on to describe how they took more than what they were supposed to, more than what was allotted to them. Leviticus 7 gave the portions that were to be given to the priests. But what we find happening is Hophni and Phinehas sticking their fork in, grabbing the prime cut of meat and saying, that's mine. I'm taking that. I want that. The fat that was supposed to be burned on the altar, I want that. In fact, they were so debauched and corrupt that when someone raised a note of alarm, hey, we shouldn't be doing this. This isn't the way God has told us to conduct worship. It says they would take it by force if necessary. Later on, we learned that these men would forcibly, it seems, sleep with the women who served God at the temple. They took advantage of their position to gain the choice cuts of meat to fatten themselves on what God had not given to them. And they took sexual advantage of the women who worked there. I can't think of a better word to describe these men than scum. The Lord calls them scoundrels, sons of Belial. Men who had no regard for God. Look at verse 17. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Something God absolutely would not stand. How had it gotten to this point where the priests of Israel were abusing their office so outrageously? Well, at the risk of being too simplistic, it started when Hophni and Phineas were kids. How do I know that? Well, because the scripture mentions another man of God who also let his sons run rampant. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Hagith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. He led a rebellion. And the text comments, in parentheses, his father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Who was Adonijah and Absalom's father? David, a man after God's own heart. David made a similar mistake to Eli. He let Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah, He let them run rampant and cause great harm to the nation and to his dynasty. Eli also, we see, indulged his sons. He could not bring himself to confront their sin at an early age. And look at chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Chapter 22 says, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing. So he said to them, verse 23, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, it is not a good report that I hear spreading among the Lord's people. He tried, at one point it seems, to step in and verbally rebuke them for their wickedness. But it was too little, too late. We see that because his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. A pretty jarring phrase, isn't it? But we see that when the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh was sinful, he rejected, he rebelled against God, and God left him to his own devices. He hardened him until Pharaoh was past the point where he could turn back. And that was where Hophni and Phinehas were. I I, I thought here Eli could and should have removed his sons from the priesthood at the very least if he couldn't curtail their evil hearts. He could have removed them from their office so they couldn't do any more damage. But he did not even do that. It's sad to see the damage that can be done when an otherwise godly man ignores his responsibilities as a parent. So we see that Eli overlooked his son's wickedness for far too long, but then also he attempted to redeem himself by raising Samuel properly. We have to give credit where credit is due. and the narrative, frequently, over and over again, you'll see Samuel grew up serving the Lord, and the young boy Samuel kept growing. It shows how Samuel was serving the Lord at a young age and was being raised right. And I have to give at least some of the credit for that to Eli. It shows that he understood what was at stake, and he took his role as mentor very seriously, at least at this point. When God gave the message of doom through Samuel, the story that most of you are probably familiar with, the Lord calling out, Samuel, Samuel. And finally, he gives his message, and let's read that in chapter 2. Or, I'm sorry, chapter 3. Eli says, Do not hide it from me. May God deal from, in verse 17, May God deal with you, be it ever so severely, if you hide from me anything he told you. Eli knew that something was serious, because God did not usually speak through people. It was a time when he was silent. And, the Lord, and Samuel told Eli the message that God had given him, which was that in, we see in verse 11, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears of it tingle. At that time I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him, through a prophet earlier in chapter 2, I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons made themselves contemptible and he failed to restrain them. Therefore, I swore to the house of Israel of, of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for by sacrifice or offering. Eli accepted this terrible news graciously. He said, may the Lord's will be done when Samuel told him the message of doom that God gave. He accepted that this young boy was becoming the mouthpiece of Yahweh. Some of you grandparents today might be sympathizing with Eli. You are trying to have a better, more Christ-like impact on your grandchildren or perhaps the children of other family members or children of your friends. A better impact than you had on your own kids. Sometimes we have to keep paying for our past mistakes. Those scars don't fade right away. But we can be so thankful that God gives us the opportunity to right now and in the future do what's right and change our course like Eli at least attempted to do with some success. But the third act of Eli's life here we see in chapter 4. God judged Eli and his house for their failure of leadership. Interestingly, there are two ways that Eli failed. And the second is more serious than the first, believe it or not. First of all, Eli failed to properly lead his sons. We've seen that. He defaulted on his parenting responsibilities. But also, Eli and his sons failed to properly lead the nation. 1 Samuel 4 talks about how the Israelites had had slipped into spiritual lethargy under Eli's watch. They weren't... They did not have a heart for God anymore. And it's really no surprise with all the hypocrisy and corruption at the highest level of leadership. Eli and Samuel wore a sort of transition between the era of the judges and the start of Israel's monarchy under Saul and then David. God could not allow Eli, or worse, his wicked sons, to lead the nation into this crucial stage of development. So he wiped the slate clean for Samuel's rise to leadership. So Hophni and Phinehas died in a battle against the Philistines. And look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Eli heard the outcry and he asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The text mentions that his eyes were so bad, he just sat in his chair with his eyes pointed toward the road where he knew news from the battle was going to come. He couldn't see it, but he could still listen, and he was anxious because the Israelites had carried the Ark of the Covenant into the Lord into battle like a lucky rabbit's foot. And the man the messenger hurried over to Eli who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set though he could not see. He told Eli, "I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day." Eli asked, "What happened, my son?" The man brought the news replied, "Eli or Israel fled before the Philistines. The army has suffered, suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas are dead. And the ark of God has been captured." When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck broke and he died, for he was an old man and heavy, and he led Israel 40 years. It's not the news of his son's death that causes Eli to pitch forward in dismay, or pitch backwards in dismay, and meet his humiliating end. No, it's the news of the Ark's capture. I see here that Eli's heart was in the right place as far as God was concerned. He was a believer, but he made tragic mistakes in his life by ignoring the wicked path his sons were taking and by, as the text says, refusing to restrain them. Many years later, God finished removing Eli's line from the priesthood. During that same rebellion I talked about with Adonijah, Abiathar, the priest, sided with Adonijah against Solomon. And we see the results there. So Solomon removed Abiathar from the priesthood of the Lord, fulfilling the word the Lord had spoken at Shiloh through Samuel about the house of Eli. God keeps his promises, whether of blessing or of judgment. This is an easy sin to slip into. In fact, I had... A commentator brought up to my I, I did not realize this, I did not remember it. Samuel made the same type of mistake. His sons later on became wicked men as well. And that was the impetus, the catalyst for when the people said, Samuel, your sons are wicked men, and you're old, we don't want them ruling over us, so we need a king. Which was a sinful response because they wanted a king to be like the other nations. But Samuel bore some responsibility for that because they did not want his wicked sons reigning over them, just like God did not want Eli's wicked sons reigning over the nation. Friends, what pattern today of these that we saw are you most prone to? If you have kids or other kids in your life, grandkids, kids that you oversee, are you obsessive over them? These are those two common extremes at the bottom of your outline obsessive parenting and dismissive parenting. An obsessive parent makes their children the central focus of everything. They fail to see the other aspects of the grand mission that God has for them because they're so consumed with making sure my kid turns out right and every little thing is perfect in my kid's life. Or we might tend to be dismissive, ignoring what our kids are doing Turning a blind eye as they walk further and further away from the Lord. To be honest, this extends into every area of our life, doesn't it? Not just child raising. We can fall into those extremes of being obsessive or dismissive about things like church, work, marriage. Friends, we are called to true devotion to our God. The fear of the Lord. With that devotion comes a measure of wise balance so that we don't topple over into one sinful extreme or the other. In our devotion to God, particularly this morning, as we looked at regarding our relationship with our children, trust God's timing, recognize his right of ultimate ownership, and serve as a responsible steward of the tasks with which he has given you. Let's learn from the failures and successes of Eli and Hannah. But most of all, friends, let's learn from the character of our amazing God. Let's honor him. One of the most gripping verses, I mentioned this a month or so ago when I spoke about what it meant to glorify God. Do you remember? I mentioned the prophet in chapter 2 convicts Eli with these words. He says, You honored your sons more than God. You honored them more than God. I think you can fall into that terrible sin by either obsessive parenting or dismissive parenting. Let us not be guilty of that, friends. Let us remember that godly parents are first and foremost devoted to God and to His commands. But to be godly, the first step is to be forgiven. Otherwise, our sins will prevent the holy God from ever being in fellowship with us. You can be a very careful, very consistent parent who ultimately fails his or her children if you do not lead them to God. And how can you lead them to God unless you are on path to him yourself? Unless you have a relationship with him? This morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal savior, If you do not have a relationship with the Heavenly Father, you need that, friends. You need that so you can be a godly parent who is neither obsessive nor dismissive, but who walks a path recognizing that my children belong to God, but as long as they are my responsibility, I'm going to fulfill that faithfully and carefully. But if you are not a believer today, you can realize that you are a sinner, as we all are, You can recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You can repent of that sin and you receive Jesus Christ into your life. There is no perfect prayer. There's nothing magic about these words, but you do need to have a heart that completely surrenders to God and wants his salvation provided through Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. You could pray a prayer something like this. Heads bowed and eyes closed. We need this truth, don't you? Don't we? I'm so glad that Eli and Hannah made the mistakes that they did, had the victories that they did, so that we can learn from them. I was told before we had Noble, the best way to practice before you have kids is to practice on other people's kids. That's why we taught some of your kids in 5th and 6th grade in the Kids for Truth. But today, friends, I ask you to look into your hearts and ask yourself, in my relationship with my kids or my grandkids or any area of my life, am I being obsessive, making it the central focus of my life, thinking it all depends on me? Or am I being dismissive and slacking off in areas that are going to come back to bite me? Maybe they already have. But friends, you can repent of that today and learn to trust God, trust his timing, recognize that he is the ultimate owner of everything in your life. And finally, trust him and be a responsible steward of what he's given you. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your patience with us. Lord, as we examine, this is a daily battle for those of us who have kids in our life that we are somewhat or fully responsible for. Lord, it is a battle to be balanced. It is a battle not to get frustrated. Help us to keep on walking in your path so that we can shine as an example to those who are looking up to us, those little eyes who want to see a godly pattern of consistency in our lives. Help us, Lord, because we cannot do it on our own. And I ask for your blessing on us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.